Good evening. My name is Paige Severance. Um, my family and I have been members at All Souls here for 13 years, and I am also uh, a member of the shepherding team. Doug asked me to briefly share about our upcoming prayer services that will take place the third Sunday of every month, beginning this month and running through November. As you know, All Souls has been in a season of transition for a couple of years, and um, it is a blessing and relief to finally be in our new building, and I think we all sighed a collective sigh of relief that we can now gather without masks, and yet we are still in a transition um, that God is leading us through. As a church, we're in this in-between place of saying goodbye to our pastor, Doug, and saying hello to somebody, someone, that God is preparing right now for leadership at All Souls. And it would be tempting to rush through this season because liminal places often are full of dis discomfort and hard emotions like sadness and maybe a little bit of doubt, um, sadness and confusion. and all of these emotions that if we just rushed through, maybe we wouldn't have to feel them and sit with them. But I think we would be missing an opportunity if we didn't slow down and pay attention. Throughout the Bible, liminal places are an invitation to ab abide closely with the Spirit for the purpose of lasting transformation. Liminal places are actually the most teachable places. And as we followed the sermon series in Exodus, it is apparent that God pushes his people into liminal places to draw his people closer in dependence on the spirit. It is a time where we can listen and, and ask for the spirit's wisdom, provision, and protection. And so as we collectively sit in this liminal space, um, we have an invitation to abide in the spirit. There is an ancient practice within the Christian tradition that actually teaches us how to pause, to pay attention, to reflect, to give thanks, to confess. And this is all done within, you may have heard of it before, the Liturgy of the Hours or the Divine Hours. There's a lot of different names for it. The Divine Office is another one. The beauty of the Liturgy of the Hours is that it teaches us to pause up to seven times a day. <laughs> That's a lot of pausing. But it's for the purpose of reflecting and, and not rushing through our day so that we can actually ask the Spirit to guide us into the next transition of our day. And as I've contemplated the beauty of this ancient practice, it's inspired me to organize our prayer services around the rhythm of the daily hours, the, the daily office. So our Sunday evening prayer services will be an intentional set time set aside each month, one evening a month, and I hope that you will come prepared in a posture of prayer and contemplation. You can be prepared to hear new musicians and hear new voices and see new faces. It will be, liturgy means the work of the people, and this will literally be the work of the people. It will be a collaborative effort for all of us to gather together in prayer. Um, again, the prayer services will be on the third Sunday of each month, um, and it will begin in two weeks on June 19th. You can also um, expect that our godly play classes will be available to our children during that time. So I invite you to participate in this, and I look forward to praying with each one of you in a couple of weeks.
Well, what is the distinctive mark of the people of God? What makes the church different from another social group? That is one of the big questions that the book of Exodus is trying to answer and Pentecost Sunday uh, reminds us that we should ask it. And as we've seen, Exodus is about liberation. God frees Israel from bondage in Egypt, leads them across the Red Sea into the liminal space of the desert. Last week, we talked about that. If you missed that, I'd encourage you to uh, listen to the podcast because we are very much in a liminal space as a community. And it is a challenging space, but a space for much growth. And there he forms them into a people so that they can witness to his glory and character to the rest of the world. How does he do that? Well, he does it in, in two ways. He starts by giving them the law. And we read about that in Exodus 19 all the way through 24. And you might say, well, you know, actually that's what makes Israel unique is the law. Nobody else had the law. That's not really true. Um, there were law codes in the ancient world. Many of the laws that Israel had were shared by other nations. Some of the laws were uh, developed and deepened in, in, in Israel, uh, but not all of them. So the law was a beautiful part of the character of Israel, how God was forming them into a holy people, but it wasn't by itself what made them unique. Now, we are on a 10-week whirlwind tour through the book of Exodus, so we can't cover all 40 chapters, but we, we should take a moment just to pause in chapter 20 and look at what are called the Ten Commandments. They're followed by 42 more commandments in the next four chapters, which we won't read, which are followed by 622 more commandments in the book of Leviticus. <laughs> so there's a lot of law in the Pentateuch. Let's, um, let's just, let me just read this for us. And God spoke all these words saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Footnote, the law is given after they've experienced grace, not before. They've been rescued. They've been restored. And God says, now that you are my people, now that you've entered into relationship with me, let me describe the way I want you to live in the world. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but in the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, 
female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox, donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, there is so much uh, and very important teaching here that we won't go into tonight. If you'd like to go deeper, there's a wonderful podcast called The Bible Project. And it's with a a Hebrew scholar named Tim Mackey. They do short five-minute wonderful videos, but they also do hour-long discussions about the theology of the Hebrew Bible. And they've just finished a powerful 10-week series on uh, Exodus. And so if you want to kind of go a little deeper, I'd suggest that. So what is God doing? Remember, okay, here's where we are in the story. Israel is is about a month out now. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai. They've been through this liminal space in the desert. And actually now the story is going to slow down and Israel is going to be at the foot of Mount Sinai uh, for the rest of the book of Exodus and much of the book of Leviticus. And what happens now? God is starting to form them as a people. And so he gives them the law to show them what kind of people he wants them to be. But he's also preparing them for something else. And this gets back to our question. What is the distinctive mark of the people of God? He's giving them the law to prepare the people of God for his presence. He wants them to be able to live holy lives so that he can dwell with them. Now, the rest of, really almost the rest of the book of Exodus is about God dwelling with his people. The whole book of Leviticus is about what to do when you sin so that you can restore fellowship with a God who wants to dwell with you. Um, And this next section, Exodus 25 to 31, has ended more read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year programs than any other part of the Bible up to this point. And if you've read it, and I would encourage you to read it. It's called Meditation Literature. It's actually meant to be read. Uh, 25 to 31 is about the details of the tabernacle. 35 to 40 are about how they build it. And it just goes into immense detail and again, if you have the time, listen to the Bible Project teachings. There's, there's rich theology and all of this, but you wonder why on earth, where was the editor? Why did this make it in? This is so boring. And then you realize, oh, no, 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 no. There is a big theological truth here. God wants to dwell with his people. He wants to dwell, to be with his people. Now here's a picture of the tabernacle behind us. Um, and it was portable. A couple of things about it. 
under Solomon, about 500 years later, it will become the temple in Jerusalem. But that's how God is going to accompany Israel the next 40 years on the journey into the promised land. Uh, The Hebrew word for tabernacle means dwelling place or residence. Uh, there's an inner sanctuary underneath that tent in the middle called the Holy of Holies. In the Holy of Holies, there's kind of a box called the Ark of the Covenant. On top of the Ark of the Covenant is something called the Mercy Seat that was covered with gold and designed with angels. And by the way, if you've ever wondered um, why we know God cares about art, It's because this section of scripture is filled with beauty. It is filled with beauty. And it's filled with non-functional beauty. Do you know what I mean by that? God doesn't say, look, the supply chain is a mess. I've got limited resources. Build me a Walmart. He doesn't say that. He says, build me lamps and Go find porpoise skins. I mean, where on earth do you find porpoise skins in the middle of Mount Sinai, the Sinai Desert? He, is, he wants a beautiful space to dwell in. There's a table on the north side where there's something called the showbread, a menorah on the south side holding seven lamps, an altar of incense on the west side. But here, here is the, the big idea of why he asks Israel to do this God wants to dwell with his people and here's a couple of verses that kind of pop up during this account chapter 25 verse 8 and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst there I will meet with you and I will speak with you I will dwell among the people of Israel and be their God And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. So now we have the answer to our question. What is the distinctive mark of the people of God? It's the presence of God. The spirit of God. The distinctive mark of the people of God is the presence of God. Moses understands this. When Israel sins by worshiping the gold calf, we'll look at that next week, God tells Moses, he says, you know, my presence is not going to accompany you anymore. And here's what Moses responds with. If your presence does not go with us, don't bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? The distinctive mark of the people of God is God's presence. Okay, now, today is Pentecost. What does understanding the book of Exodus do to help us understand what's happening to Pentecost? It's going to take a little bit of work, uh, but it'll be worth it in the end. 
Pentecost comes 50 days after the Passover. The rabbis thought that Pentecost celebrated the giving of the Torah. And so that would be their annual festival remembering the giving of the Torah. And let's remember a little bit about how the people of God related to God's presence in the Old Covenant. God's presence dwelt in the tabernacle, not in the people. The Holy of Holies was covered by a veil. Only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. And he could enter on one day of the year, the Day of Atonement. There's some other things if we had time in Leviticus, you find out that there's fire that surrounds the Holy of Holies and that if you approach it inappropriately, the fire will consume you. Um, there's a lot of different ideas about this in the, in the Pentateuch where, where it's very clear that it's very, very, God is very, very removed from us. There's an enormous barrier that only the high priest can get through. Now, years later, um, maybe we could put the slide back up about with the picture. Oh, no, that's right. We're going to go to, we can't do that because we're going to go to Joel. I wish we could have two screens, but we can't. So this, this goes along for many years. And then the prophets, God starts to put something on their heart. And the prophets start to have this dream. That one day, the Holy Spirit would come and dwell in the hearts of all people. Joel is one of those prophets. God says through Joel, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days. I will pour out my spirit. So Jesus finally comes. He declares that a new kingdom is here. And he says, one of the marks of this new kingdom is that everyone in it will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So he rises from the dead, he gathers the disciples, tells them to wait for this baptism, Acts 1.4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So they all gather in Jerusalem. They're praying. This is during the Feast of Pentecost. Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And when Paul reflects on this event, he says, let me tell you what's happening. The church is now the temple and the Spirit of God now dwells within the people of God. 
2 Corinthians 6, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, and now he's going to quote Exodus, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I shall be their God and they shall be my people. And then Paul also says that the individual believer is a body is a temple as well. 1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? So still today, the distinctive mark of the people of God is the presence of God. Now, if that's true, if God's already done that for us, if he gave us the spirit, why does the church remember Pentecost every year? I mean, if we have the spirit and it's kind of done, why bother with what we sang tonight about asking the Spirit to fill us in a fresh way? Well, again, the Old Testament is helpful here. The Israelites build the tabernacle. At the end of Exodus, in chapter 40, there's this Old Testament Pentecost. The Holy Spirit falls on the temple. His glory is everywhere. People can't stand up. It's an incredible event. Later, the same thing will happen in the temple in Jerusalem. But then follow years of rebellion and spiritual lukewarmness and inattention to the ways of God and God's spirit leaves the temple. If you want to read about it, it's in Ezekiel chapter 10. Now in the new covenant, God's spirit dwells with us, the temple of the living God. I don't believe that the spirit will ever leave us or forsake us. I think the New Testament teaches that. But, and this is an important But while it seems clear to me at least that once the Holy Spirit has come to dwell a person, the Spirit won't leave the person, believers and churches can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can disobey the Holy Spirit. We can quench uh, the Holy Spirit. And that's why Paul urges his people to be filled with the Spirit. And let's end by looking carefully at this command. It's uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to point out something, just get a little nerdy here for just a second. Um... If, if that slide took with the, the Greek on it. So one of the ways, if, if you're interested in what a Greek word is, you can look up, you can just uh, Google Ephesians 5.20 uh, interlinear and it will give you the Greek uh, and, and tell you what the Greek is. And here's, what I, here's the point that I want to make. The letter to the Ephesians would have been read aloud to a community not much smaller than maybe about the size of this. Uh, it wouldn't have been something you read in your devotions. Uh, it wouldn't have been something, you didn't have a Bible. You didn't have an app on your phone. The only time you got scripture was when you gathered and somebody would, would, would bring out a scroll or a, a couple pieces of parchment and say, we've just gotten this from an apostle or a messenger of the apostle. Let me read it to you. That was as close as you got to scripture unless you were able to go to the synagogue. 
And so Paul has written this letter and one of the elders in the church of Ephesus would stand up and read it and he would say to the entire community, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And and what I want you to see there, down on the bottom is um, the different those, are, uh, those tell you what kind of a verb it is. And when you see the, the P, that means plural. And we don't have a plural. Well, in the South, we kind of do it. Y'all. And, which is good. We should have a plural. Most languages do. And so the only time I know of in the New Testament where there's an instruction to be filled with the Spirit, it's plural. I may be wrong about that, but I couldn't, if you, if you know one, let me know. I can't think of another example. We tend to think of the spiritual life as me, Jesus, coffee, and my Jesus is calling devotional, and I'm good for the day. I do that about every morning. Not that devotional, but I do something like that. I don't think that's how the early Christians thought about the spiritual life. They were much more communal in the way that they thought about it. And the divine hours that Paige uh, will be talking to us about was very much a part of their corporate spirituality as they would stop what they were doing and they would all come together and pray. And so what I want to, to suggest as we begin the season of Pentecost tonight is that we corporately pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit. We corporately pray. Now, of course, we should individually pray. We want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But that we communally pray that the presence of God would mark our church. Now, we do this every time we gather for worship. And this Pentecost season, we're going to devote the third Sunday of the month to to do this in in a special way. Two cautions and we'll go to the table. Caution one. You can't ask for $3 worth of God. Um, The Holy Spirit isn't like a a supplement. (laughs) You know, I'm kind of struggling here a little bit. I think I'll get a little, little spirit. No, it doesn't work that way. In the old covenant, following the presence of God meant following the cloud, right? That was how the cloud was manifest. If we, if you, if I pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit, that's not just kind of a cliche. You are saying, I'm saying, we are saying, we will follow the cloud wherever the cloud goes. I agree. That's, I'd cry too. So. And, and I, I'm not trying to be melodramatic. If you're not ready to pray that, don't pray it yet. This isn't just a Christian cliche. It's a dangerous, dangerous prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. But if you pray... Fill me with the Holy Spirit. You are saying, I will now follow you wherever the cloud goes. And that's true corporately. That's true individually. And that can lead you into places you never would have dreamed of. 
So again, I'm not trying to do a preacher trick. If you're not in a place where you're ready to that, to do that, don't, don't pray that prayer. It's spiritual malpractice for me to encourage you to do something you're not ready to do. And bad things happen when you halfway pray prayers like that. Second caution. And then a vast page to pray a benediction over us. The filling of the Spirit is often accompanied by the gifts of the Spirit, as we see in Acts 2. And it is common when a community begins eagerly seeking the filling of the Spirit to see gifts like tongues and prophecy and healing start to be released. Now, on the one hand, these gifts are not central to the spiritual life. Many believers have Spirit-filled lives They eagerly seek the filling of the Spirit. And they do not even believe these gifts are for the people of God today. And they have no interest in practicing them. And if if that is where you are before the Lord, you should not pursue these gifts in any way. That's where you are with the Lord. But if in your understanding these gifts are available to the church today... And the Holy Spirit begins to sprinkle them around you as the community is filled with the Spirit. And it might look like you start to just kind of live a bit more intuitively. Uh, Maybe you start to kind of have impressions or images or words that the only way you would know it for someone that leads you to pray is that it's supernatural in origin. You find yourself impressed to pray for healing. Healing happens. You, you start to feel a language kind of welling up in your mouth during prayer. These kind of things. You have a choice at that point. And, and again, let me back up. If you believe these gifts are not for today, you need to follow your conscience and not practice them. This is part of the beauty of our church, right? This is not the creed. This is, these are electives. <laughs> and so you're, we all can disagree on this. But if you think these gifts are for today and the Spirit begins to give some of them, don't shut them down. Because I think they're kind of like little tests. Like you say, you, you say you want to be filled with the Spirit. Well, let me just, let me try something a little out of your comfort zone that might make you kind of have to humble yourself. Um, feels a little odd. Uh, maybe it would cause you to kind of be a little awkward in front of your friend. Let me just see if you'll do that. And it was like, nope, 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 nope. I need to be in control. I think you're shutting down uh, a work of the Spirit. And so if that starts to happen around you, I'd encourage you to find a friend or two, a safe place to start to explore those giftings. Well, Paige, would you come pray for the filling of the Spirit for us? Will you pray with me? O Spirit of God, fill our hearts Fill the presence of this room, this church, as we go out into the world and labor to bring forth new life. May the God who breathed life into creation be your delight. 
May Christ Jesus give you hope and be the hope of all your dreams and visions. And may the Holy Spirit, your advocate and support, set your hearts ablaze with a passion for peace. We go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Amen. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord. 